Thank you, Vincent. Worship team for leading us in songs of praise, <coughs> especially reminding us again of the work of Jesus on the cross and, and what he's done for us. We uh, welcome all of you here to our service this morning. Glad to have you, uh, whether you're visiting us for the first time, glad to have you with us. Welcome. Uh, or maybe a returning guest, some of you perhaps as well. We're so glad to have you join us. And of course, all our regular tenders and members of the church were uh, it's a great joy to just draw together and to worship Christ together. If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to uh, the book of Luke, and Luke chapter 3, verse 23 through 38 is what we're going to look at today. Luke chapter 3, verse 23 through 38. Uh, I was just thinking about it kind of just, uh, humorously. If I had done a kind of like a, a, uh, a poll of, at the beginning of my series in Luke, and I'd ask you to, to vote on the passage of Luke that you most want to hear me preach about, I would venture to guess that the genealogy of Jesus would have received zero votes. Am I, am I right? Or would you have voted for it? Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Probably not, though. You would have thought, no, that's, uh, I know what that's about. But anyways, today we're going to come, we come at this passage called The Genealogy of Jesus, The Genealogy of Jesus. And we'll be looking at this passage. We're going to look at Luke chapter 3, verse 23 through 38. Luke chapter 3, 23 through 38. And I'm going to, even though it's a long section, usually I'll read it in the midst of the section, but I'm going to highlight just key verses through the sermon. So I want to read the whole passage for us, even though I know as I read this, many of the names will become un, be unfamiliar to you, but I just want to read it so that you can get the, get the sense of the, of, this, of the flow of this passage, as well as the, if, if you can hear it, really the thrust of this passage. And some of the key themes that I'll be highlighting as well. So Luke chapter 3, verse 23 through 38. When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, the son of Methat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Hesli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Semain, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Maliah, the son of Mena, the son of Metatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Heber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalil, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text, uh, this genealogy of Jesus, from Jesus all the way to Adam and to you. And God, we thank you for your inspired word. We, we don't want to simply gloss over this text, even though it may not seem significant to us at, at face value. Uh, it seems like a long list of names, Lord. But now we pray that you would make your word clear to us today as we uh, highlight some of uh, the, the themes of this, of this genealogy. May you show us uh, what this passage means and what is its significance, not only for its, for, primarily for its original readers, but also, Lord, for the readers today, for us in this room. Show us, Father, the, our need for your word, that you would feed us upon this word, Strengthen us upon you. Build your church upon this word. And God, we pray that your spirit would be our teacher. Uh, even as we cover some, uh, some, uh, some themes that may be unfamiliar to some, we pray that you would teach us 
and begin building in us an understanding of your scriptures and understanding not just the plan of our lives, but really the, the plan of humanity, the, your plan of salvation that you've been orchestrating throughout human history. And we pray that we would see uh, what an amazing plan yours is, a plan that centers and finds its completion and compli- finds its beginning in you and in your son. And God, we thank you for this time. Pray that you would teach us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I've kind of just, we're in that section of uh, the text of Luke where we're talking about that, that section where Jesus is preparing for his ministry. And I've put this slide up before. It's just a basic outline of this section from chapter 3, chapter 4. We're in these four events that we looked at or we're looking at. We're going to see events that prepare Jesus for the beginning of his public ministry. We've already seen the forerunner of Jesus, the man who was called and prophesied by God to be a, be a witness, of the, to point to Jesus, to baptize people, for a, a, to perform a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's John the Baptist. We looked then at John, Jesus' actual baptism by John, where God declared, thou art my beloved son, you, in you I am well pleased. And today we're going to look at the genealogy of Jesus, and we'll learn its significance as well. And then next week, or next time, we'll look at the temptation of Jesus, that final uh, preparation for Jesus' public ministry, and then entering into the beginning, chapter 4, verse 14, the beginning of his ministry. So that's where we're heading. Now, but we're, today we want to take a look at this genealogy. Uh, if you've been with us long enough, you've probably heard me preach through a genealogy. But if you've not been with us long enough, then you probably haven't heard one. But genealogies are kind of... Um, difficult to interpret, right? And most of us, you read it, uh, you kind of hit the, especially when those really long ones, like in First Chronicles, you kind of read it like eight chapters of genealogy? What is it talking about? Uh, but there's other shorter ones that we find in Genesis 5, for instance. Uh, we'll find it, we've also seen uh, in the other gospel, Matthew. Matthew has one as well. And we'll see it in different places. So inevitably you come across genealogies. And it's good to keep in mind some kind of basic guidelines for interpreting genealogy. I want to give them to you, just equip you a little bit, so when you're Bible reading, when you come across genealogies, you might consider some of these points. When it comes to interpreting genealogies, I want to just remind us of four points, four things. At least there's other things, just the general other rules. But first of all is to pay attention to the introductory and concluding statements. Basically, this is just a look at the context. Look at the context, the beginning and the end of, of this passage, because usually at the beginning and end of a genealogy is going to be some indicator to the meaning or the, the thrust or the focus of a genealogy, why, what it's there for. It's not just a list of names, but there's, there's a purpose to it. It's trying to trace something for us, something that's significant for us to understand. Sometime, uh, second thing we might look for is to identify the pattern. Every genealogy generally has a pattern, a uh, certain kind of pattern in our passage today, for instance, you see the pattern is basically the son of blank, the son of thing, the son of blank. So it just keeps going, repeating the son of Matt. So that whoever's A is the son of B, essentially. Uh, <clears throat> and sometimes the pattern will give us a, an idea of what is going to be the focus of a text. Uh, a second thing is kind of related is examine for repeated phrases. Certainly there's the pattern of a genealogy, but sometimes there's repeated phrases within a genealogy that may come across. Um, and those repeated phrases, even in the pattern, will often be a clue to the significance of, a, of the meaning of a text. I, I always think of, when I think of this one, I think of Genesis 5, just the repeated phrase, and he died, and he died, and he died. And, it's just, and that's right after the curse of sin. And so you kind of say, oh, yeah, yeah, it's a pretty clear that Genesis 5 reminding us that, yeah, there's this long genealogy people. But because of the curse of sin, everyone dies. Anyways, then lastly, fourthly, just note the changes to the pattern. Whenever there's a change to the pattern, it's probably an indication of something significant. Matthew's really significant, uh, does this a lot. And he's listing the father gave birth to this son, father gave birth to this son. But then every once in a while, he'll interject something into the pattern. You see a comment about a woman. And that's unusual in most genealogists. Re- just ne- never done, basically. Women are not usually listed in a genealogy. That's, uh, it's usually traced. It is Traced to the father. And so when he would interject, Matthew would interject the, a woman into the mix, usually there's a, there's a purpose that he had for that, something to, to a point that he wants to make. Anyways, of course, uh, <clears throat> so with that in mind, we try to apply some of these. We will, we will apply some of these principles in interpreting gene, the genealogy of Luke uh, or Luke's genealogy of Jesus today. But if you've ever read the, read the Gospels, and I've, as I've already mentioned, there are actually two genealogies of Jesus. 
Okay, and, and if you are, uh, you know, just kind of got an extra week on your hand, oh, give me a month on your hand, and you got, you know, you want to do some fun with the Bible, you know, I'm, I'm always about telling you how to have fun with the Bible. Do a comparison of the two genealogies, one in Matthew and one in Luke. And I just will throw it up here. Uh, there's kind of two genealogies. One's Matthew 1, 2 to 17, and one's Luke chapter 3, verse 23, 38, the one we're looking at. And, and Matthew's, and you just, if you look, kind of compare and contrast, and you'll just start noticing, like, how they're sa- the same, but yet, at the same time, how they're different. Um, <clears throat> and, for instance, in Matthew's gospel, uh, the genealogy begins the gospel. Matthew starts right away. Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham, and then, boom, he go- traces this genealogy. But Luke's, for some reason or other, he doesn't begin his gospel with a genealogy. He puts it here at the end of chapter 3, before chapter 4. And is there a reason in that? Well, there's the differences. Uh, Matthew also traces from Jesus to Abraham. He doesn't go any farther, just to Abraham. But Luke's Luke's genealogy goes from Jesus all the way to Adam. Perhaps there's significance in that. There's the pattern. We look at the pattern. And we can see that in the pattern of Matthew, it's kind of in descending order. A was the father B. So everybody else is kind of descendant of the father. But in Luke's gospel, we, go, we see it goes back in, uh, in ascending order. B was the son of A. So it starts with Jesus, and it kind of traces back all the way to the, the early, his early, earliest ancestors. So there's a, contra, there's a difference in them. And, and perhaps there's a, there may be, sometimes it could be stylistic differences, but there usually is a significance to these differences. And so we ask ourselves, why the differences? Why are, why are they different? And we're going to actually uh, see in a couple places how the genealogies, or these are just a handful, just a, a sprinkling of it. There's a lot of significant differences between the uh, genealogies that we'll try to uh, mention here and there as appropriate. But for Luke, Luke has a purpose, including the genealogy of Jesus at this point. And today we will learn this, that Luke's genealogy of Jesus is recorded to show us that he is the messianic son of God, the messianic son for all mankind. He's the, you see this repetition of this phrase, son of, son of, son of. He is the son, the messianic son for all mankind, not just for Israel, not just for some people, but for all mankind. And we're going to see this reflected, in, I think, as we look at the outline today. Really, this, this passage does not break down into any clear outline. As a, you, know, you might not care about that. You think every sermon has three points. Well, um, no, <laughs> every sermon doesn't have three points. Uh, um, they just often do. Uh, but... <clears throat> As scholars have looked at this, and they'll look at this, there's no real clear outline. There are about 70, if you take out God, there's like 77 names here, and supposedly it breaks down into 11 sets of seven names. Why there's 11 sets? Well, there's no, we have no one idea, because most of these names are just foreign to us. We have no idea who these people are. Uh, they're just names, you know. Some are familiar in the sense, but we don't know that they're not the namesake of those names. But uh, so today's outline is a bit more, instead of a, what we call an uh, an exegetical outline, that it follows the, the flow of the text. It's more of a thematic outline, okay, thematic. That I, I'm highlighting themes within uh, this genealogy for us today. And that's just kind of good so you know I'm just trying to be honest. So, because uh, I didn't want to have a 77-point outline, and, uh, which would be, I'm sure you would love. Anyways, we're going to look at four aspects of Jesus' lineage that show Jesus' qualification as the Messianic son. Uh, let's say, son of God for all humankind or mankind. Okay, that's where we're going to be. Hopefully, you got this. Wrote, you wrote that down, and we're going to take a look then at these four aspects of Jesus' lineage. All right, what is it? First of all, in this genealogy, we're going to learn about that this is a, a legal lineage of Jesus. This is the legal lineage of Jesus. What does that mean? Okay, um, a lot of times you're going to hear uh, that. Uh, when they compare and contrast Matthew and Luke, sometimes they'll say Matthew is the legal lineage of, of Jesus and Luke is, the, uh, is the, really the, the, the physical lineage of Jesus. And we'll, I'll explain that. It'll come out, flush that out more. But I want to make it clear that I believe the wording here tells us, indicates this is the, a legal lineage. Yes, it, I'm going to tell you later, it is a physical, biological lineage of Jesus, but it's, also, but it's primarily as well a legal lineage. So we'll flesh that. Let me show you what that means. So in verse 23, we begin, when he began his ministry, when Jesus began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. Now, in this introductory statement, 
Luke reveals to us that Jesus was 30 years old, or is about 30 years old. And that age is significant. It's a significant age. It's kind of like for us, 18 is significant, or 21 is significant. What 30 was significant in Jewish culture. Not that that was the age of adulthood. The age of adulthood for this young boy was been 13, for instance. But 30 was significant because for two possible reasons. Luke doesn't tell us, of course, so, but it's one of these two. It could be both are in mind. But first, age 30 was the age that priests entered into the service of the temple. You know, you could be born a Levite, but that doesn't mean you could just go start serving the temple. In according to Numbers chapter 4, it was at the age of 30 that you were added to the list, the list by which you would then be selected for various, various responsibilities of a, of a Levite or a priest in the temple of God. So, but you had to be 30 or older. Uh, actually, uh, there's, a, there's an upper limit as well. A second significance of 30 is that it was the age, significantly, it was the age that David began to reign as king of Israel. And that's according to 2 Samuel 5, verse 4. And here, Jesus is coming not only uh, as a priest, and certainly he is coming to be a priest, and, and coming to serve and make, offer himself up as a sacrifice, but there's a second aspect where David is coming to be king, and he's coming as a king at the, around the age of 30, as David was king. Now, we can't be dogmatic which one is the intention here, but I think what we can conclude is that Luke's purpose is to show that Jesus was of an, a maturity, of an age that qualified him to serve in his role as the messianic son. He was of age. It's not just all, he was an immature young guy who doesn't know anything, what he's doing. He was ready. He's ready to step forward into the role that God had sent him here for. Anyways, with that uh, said, Luke begins his genealogy with identifying Jesus as the son of Joseph. The son of Joseph. So uh, he met the age requirements, if you will. And so, but he's the son of Joseph here. Now, notice the additional phrase in verse 23, that as being as was supposed. And that's so significant. Luke, being a man of details, tells us that he kind of winks at us, as was supposed. Wink, wink, you know? Because all of us have been studying Luke, and we know, oh, we know exactly what he's talking about. Everybody in that day that did not hear about the virgin birth, which was the majority of them, did not know that Jesus was not actually the biological son of Joseph. But instead, he was as he was supposed. They thought he was because, uh, you know, uh, he was the son of Joseph because he was raised by him. But in actuality, of course, this is a reference to Jesus' virgin birth. Virgin birth recorded for us in Luke 1, 26 through 35. But yet I want to add that though Joseph is not his biological father, he is nevertheless Jesus' earthly father. And more important, he is Jesus' legal father. Joseph adopted Jesus basically as his own son. He took Mary and he raised up Jesus as his own son. And as oldest son, Jesus then was the legal heir of Joseph's, uh, of Joseph's inheritances in his line. But it's, with that said, and that's not easily, I think we can understand that. That's why it says the son of Joseph. That is, this is who his legal father is. So he, he, he's from this line. But at that point, we arrive here at a major, one of the major interpretive issues, one of the major difficulties in the text. Because if you notice, Joseph here is, is identified as the son of Eli. And that's, you know, to most of us, that means nothing. Uh, unless you are a scholar who knows your Matthew genealogy. But when you look at your Matthew genealogy, if you look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 16, uh, you will notice there that Joseph's father is listed as not Eli, but as a man named Jacob. He's the father of Jacob. And now, we might say, sometimes we think, because we know that in genealogy, sometimes they skip, you know, generations. So some people might say, well, maybe it's because uh, Matt, Luke's just recording his, his grandfather, whereas Matthew's recording his father. So that's why the names are different. So they sometimes skip generations. But when you actually compare the two genealogies, when you compare from Joseph all the way to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, who is in both genealogies, none of the names in that range match up. None of the names are even, even mentioned in there. So these are, by the, just looking at it, these are two different genealogies. To us, it's like, this is two different people, okay? And that should, you know, and if so, next time, it's just so you know this. I'm not trying to undermine your faith, but someone's going to ask you someday as a Christian, like, whoa, you say the Bible doesn't have errors? Well, here it says, this is a descendant. Joseph is the son of Eli, and here it says Joseph the son of Jacob. So what is it? Is that an error? No, it's not, okay? And you know, hopefully you, you believe God's, God can speak his word and not speak error. But anyways, how do we answer that? All right. 
Um, so scholars have come up with this answer, and I, boy, I've read some, and it's like, it's, a, it's, a, it's doctoral work, okay? But here's what the majority of scholars today, evangelical scholars, have concluded, that this genealogy is not technically the genealogy of Joseph, but the genealogy of Mary. And you can look in your study Bibles, and you'll see that it said there, oh, this is the genealogy of Mary, that Eli is actually Mary's father, and therefore, uh, this is a tracing of her, uh, of her uh, uh, lineage. And that's, and that's cool. And I actually, I, I, be, I agree with that. I believe that this is Mary's father and this is uh, Mary's genealogy. In fact, if you think about Luke, Luke does emphasize a lot about Mary. He doesn't talk about Gabriel appearing to Joseph. His focus in this gospel is on Mary. So it's, it's quite likely, quite possible that that is the case here. However... Uh, I don't think it's adequate of an answer. Uh, and, and, I, and I know I'm getting a little technical here, but here's what I think. Because I believe this is showing a legal lineage. That's why it's imp- uh, Luke in Red Courts that he is the son of Joseph, even as being supposed the son of Joseph. He, he could have said the son of Mary. Luke has no problems mentioning Mar- women in, this, in his gospel. His gospel mentions the most unique women in all compared to the other four gospels. So it's odd that he would start this uh, genealogy and not just simply say, Jesus was the son of Mary, the son who the daughter of Eli, and then continue on. So I believe he intentionally puts Joseph here, and other scholars would have agreed that they, by including Joseph here, it is intentional that this is a legal lineage. This is a legal line of inheritance, a legal line of rights and, and privileges that is trying to be established. But how can this be? One possible answer uh, mentioned by one of some scholars is that this this was Mary's lineage. Mary's father was Eli, but it's possible that Eli had no sons. If in Eli had no, and if according to Jewish custom, when a man does not have any sons to pass his inheritance down, who would it be passed to? It's passed on to the daughters. It passed on to the daughters, and so. It's possible when, it, because the inheritance was going to be passed through Mary, when Mary w- uh, became betrothed or uh, married Joseph, Eli could have adopted, and that's not uncommon, Eli could have adopted Joseph as his legal son. Even as a, he was a son-in-law by a marriage, but then he adopted him as a son so that he would be his heir. So he would carry on his name as well. So having said that, well, that just simply say, this is Mary's lineage, right? This is Mary's lineage. But the clear emphasis on the naming of only the men here emphasizes that what we have here is a, a legal lineage. It's a, establishing a legal line that you're tracing. Because if it's not, you know, if it is marriage, then it's, it's kind of a, it's not a legal lineage. It, it, it sort of breaks down. It's just a, phys, it would be a purely a physical lineage. And the, the significance, of course, of tracing through Mary's father, Eli, rather than Joseph's father, Jacob, is going to be seen in the second point. But Jesus is legally Joseph's son. And therefore, he inherits the rights and privileges of all his ancestors before him, of Joseph, of Eli, etc., going forth. At the same time, though, he represents those who came before him. Now, before we move on to point two, I really want to just throw in a a devotional point. Much of what I'm going to speak today is very theological, it's very thematic, but there's, when I read the genealogy, I can't help but feel this very... um, it's, it's just kind of a devotional thought that comes out. And I, I thought it was valuable for me. I hope it may be valuable to you. And that is this, that, you know, you and I may not know much about our ancestry. You know, you may know one generation back, your parents, two generations, your grandparents. You might even know three generations back, your great-grandparents. You might know who they are. And if you, you know, actually I asked her names. Who actually knows has a long list of ancestors? I actually had somebody after first service say they, had, they knew 28 generations back, which was pretty impressive. Does anybody else have something like that? You do. I would love to hear it because I would love to kind of, that's really fascinating, to actually trace your, your, hair, your ancestry back. And though we may only know a limited number of our generations, I think all of us in this room, as soon as we reflect upon this, the very fact that you are alive right now, right here, is it just a testimony to a, a, a whole host of generations of people before you that have existed, and by the providence of God, so that you might be here today. God orchestrated all those people through the wars, through the diseases, through many, um, you know, just the d- destructions, devastations, 
to this day, he's kept a line of people, a line of your ancestors, so that today you would be here. Today you would know Jesus. I think we can appreciate, we all need to, should appreciate the rights and the, the privileges, the blessings, the wisdom, the knowledge, and much more that we've received from our previous generations. You don't have to go that far. You can just simply say, just from your parents or grandparents. This week, uh, uh, just for me, it was a, a little bit of a mildly sorrowful week. Uh, it was the third anniversary of my father's passing. But I think, I like pre- uh, having studied this text, I was, like, I was appreciated because it just reminded me that Oh, uh, my father has passed upon me many things, and his life was a blessing to mine. Uh, you know, I think about him and how he, you know, here's this, a man who lived as a, in the middle class, merchant class, middle, probably middle class, upper middle class uh, in the Philippines. I'm being immigrated here in 1968, you know, and to basically come to a whole new land, leaving his family behind, to take up a job that basically pays a little more than minimum wage at the time. Yeah, it was basically about two, two something. Minimum wage like 180, 190 an hour. And why would he do that? Of course, uh, he told me it was difficult. And, but he tells me that it was for, you know, for their children, for myself, my sister, so that we would have a better life. And I can imagine that for all of us here in this room, maybe many of us here, we, we probably have stories of, of immigrant parents or immigrant uh, grandparents uh, that sacrifice a lot to come here and um, to provide so that you a better life. And all of us, I think, can give thanks. You know, in, in my culture, some, back in my far enough back culture, we would just worship our ancestors. We would give them thanks. Um, but, you know, as Christians, we give thanks to God for our, our ancestors. We give thanks to God for, yes, the parents, imperfect as they are, grandparents, sinners that they were, great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents, and so on, all the way back. A whole host of sinners, yes, but a whole host of people that lived and worked, provided for the next generation, taught, passed on, so that you would have, basically be what you are today by the grace of God. We are the products of the providence of God through a long line of ancestors. I think we should thank God for that, just be amazed by that. And Jesus was too, as we see in this text. But next, as we move on, we consider Jesus' second aspect of his lineage, and that is we look at Jesus' royal lineage. The royal lineage, not only was he the son of Joseph, but here we're going to see in verse 24 to 31. I know I wrote 34 to 31 on on the slide, it's 24 to 31. Um, But it is that he is the son of David. Now, The most significant name in this list is at the end of verse 31, and that is Jesus is the son of David. As you know, David was the second king of Israel, right? And he ruled after Saul. And it was back in 2 Samuel chapter 7 where God makes a covenant with David. God promises to David basically a future descendant, a future seed of his, a son of his, whose throne would never end. God, in fact, promised that he would be a father to the son of David. And this son of David would be not just a son of David, but he would be a son to God. That's a very unique relationship that was promised in in 2 Samuel chapter 7. In fact, in verse 16, we hear this promise to David. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. You see, the son of David that is promised here in the Davidic covenant is going to sit on the throne of God forever. And Jesus is that fulfillment of the promise, of this promise. He would be the one to sit on David's throne forever. Other kings sat on the throne and died. But Jesus is going to sit on the throne forever. And we see this uh, mentioned in Luke chapter 1, verse 31 to 33. An angel appeared to Mary and said to her, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. So you see, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He is the messianic son of David, the messianic son of God. In fact, the term son of David had became synonymous with Messiah. 
several times in uh, the Gospels, uh, Matthew 9, 27, 12, 23, Luke 18, 38 is another one, a couple other places, where the term son of David, son of David, have mercy upon me, it became a messianic title. And so we understand that Jesus is the son of David. He is the, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, the promise of Davidic He will be the king who will sit on the throne forever. But here's when we come to another uh, interpretive issue, another kind of challenge as we try to harmonize the, the different gospels. One other name that's worth mentioning here is a name that we don't generally recognize. Um, now, when you think of David's son, who do you think of? Solomon, right? Yeah, David Solomon, right? <laughs> David son Solomon. Most of us don't think of David's son, Nathan. But that's all we find here in the text, right? We look at verse 31 again. Who's the son of, the son, who's the son of Nathan? David? The son of Nathan, it says at the end of verse 31. Nathan, the son of David. And so that stands out for us. Because in, G, in Matthew's genealogy, there the son of David is listed as what we expect, Solomon. Matthew 1.6, by the way. And so Matthew, of course, he has a specific purpose in why he does that. He's tracing the line of royal kings from David to Solomon to, the, his, uh, to Rehoboam, et cetera, on down. So why does Luke then choose to trace Jesus' line to Nathan? Why doesn't he trace it to Solomon? Now, Luke, of course, again, doesn't, he doesn't give us any clue. There's no asterisk. Oh, by the way, I'm putting this here, Nathan, because here's the reason. But I, I believe because Luke had done his job and he had researched the scriptures. He had searched, he had not searched the scriptures, but he had searched uh, the, the resources, the, the, all the first-hand accounts. And he understood that there was something called the curse on Jeconiah. The curse on Jeconiah, or Jeconiah is also named, he's a king, a Davidic king, uh, also named uh, Jehoiakim, also named Coniah. But he was the last king, basically, before Judah was taken into captivity. And he was so wicked that according to Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 30, God pronounces a curse on Jehoiakim or Jeconiah. In fact, he's called Coniah in the the text. And he says this of him, thus says the Lord, write this man, that's Jeconiah, write this man down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. Does that that's, pretty, that's a pretty bad curse. He basically said, of the king, he said, this king, you can consider him childless. Basically, that he, it's as if he has no descendants because none of his descendants, none of them will ever sit on the throne of David. But he's the Davidic king. He's the son of David. He's the son of, uh, he's descendant of David. So how is it then anybody from his, from his physical seed, his physical descent, will be unable to sit on the throne according to God's curse? And that's where Luke then chooses to trace, not through Solomon. Solomon gives birth eventually to Joachim. But he chooses to trace David's lineage, not through Solomon, but through Nathan. And by doing so, he basically circumvents or goes around the curse on Jeconiah. Hopefully, if you're hearing this for the first time, you you probably should just look up the verse and think about it a little bit. it's, It's a lot to swallow, I know. Just write it down, think about it. Um, I actually had a chart, but I didn't get a chance to throw it up to show us how there's the, the chart from David, kind of spill it, and then through Solomon, Nathan, and then come back uh, later on in Jesus. By tracing Jesus' ancestry through David's son, Nathan, the curse is avoided. So in Luke, what we have is that Jesus is legally the son of Joseph, and therefore he's legally the son of David. Therefore, he's legally, he's, he has every legal right to David's throne. But he's also, because he's the, through the son of Nathan, he's also the biological, the physical descendant of David as well. Eventually through Mary, who gives him birth. Thus fulfilling the Davidic covenant of a seed of Abraham, a son of Abraham, who would sit on the throne of forever as Davidic king. So Jesus in every way has a right to sit on the throne of David's king. And that's why, uh, that's why we can see this aspect of his, basically his royal lineage. All right, we, a third aspect of Jesus' lineage and, uh, is found in verse 32, 34a. And that is Jesus' religious lineage. He's called, not only he's the son of Joseph and the son of David, but he's also the son of Abraham. As we look at verse 32, uh, tracing from David all the way to Abraham, we, the significant name is that 
He is the son of Abraham in, in the middle of verse 34. Since the Messiah had to be the descendant of David, then it would also mean that Messiah would also have been a descendant of Abraham because David was descended from Abraham. But being the descendant of Abraham or being the son of Abraham is, means more than just being a descendant. It carries with it its own significance in Jewish uh, doctrine, Jewish theology, in biblical doctrine. To be a son of Abraham had, a, had the significance because of the covenant that God promised to Abraham. We call this the Abrahamic covenant. So we, we looked at the Davidic covenant, now we're going to look at the Abrahamic covenant. God, remember in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 to 3, made a promise to Abraham. Abraham was nobody. He was just living out in Ur of Chaldees. He was living in the, uh, the Fertile Crescent. And, and so God called him, spoke to him, and he said this to him. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go forth from your country, leave basic Chaldea, Chaldea, and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. The Abrahamic covenant really boils down to three things. It's a threefold promise, a promise of, number one, a land. He says, I'm going to go, just leave. In fact, he didn't know where he was going. Just go and go out, I'm going to show you. Along the way, I'm going to show you where this land is. So he shows him a country. He's going to pride a land. Secondly, he's going to promise a great nation of him. He's going to make him into a great nation. And by the way, by being the promise of a great nation implies the necessity of, of a seed of Abraham, descendants of Abraham. And then thirdly, there's the promise of a blessing, a blessing upon Abraham and his descendants, but it's also a blessing that then through them would expand to all the families of the earth. So there's a land, a nation, or descendants, or seed, and a blessing, threefold promise in the Abrahamic covenant. The covenant would be eventually ratified officially in Genesis 15, where Abraham, basically one day, God showed him all stars and reiterated his promise to Abraham. Abraham then believed God, and it was reckoned unto him as righteousness. That's a, basically Abraham believed. He exercised faith in that promise of God. But in Genesis 22, which we, I thank uh, Brother Albert for just reading it as a call to worship this morning, we see the story where God then tested Abraham's faith. He asked Abraham to take his only son after, basically after 100 years, he had one son, Isaac. And he was his only, his only son with, him, with Sarah. And God told him to take that son and take him to a mountain that he would show him. And there he would take him and then he would basically call to sacrifice his son. It was a test. And Abraham, uh, we learn actually in Hebrews that he, he believed that, though this was his only son, he believed all God's promises, but he believed that, well, God knows somehow he's going to raise up my son from the dead, <laughs> even after I sacrifice him. That's what it was implied by Hebrews. But so Abraham was about to sacrifice him, and then, of course, God says, stop. I now know you believe me. You've, you passed the test. He provides the, the, uh, the ram and replacement of uh, his son Isaac. And then in Genesis 22, 16, 18, which we kind of read already a little bit, but I want to just, uh, he just essentially reiterates the, Abra the Abrahamic covenant. In verse 18, he says this, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. As a confirmation of that faith, he says, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. See, here is verse 18 is the most significant uh, part for for you and me, the promises of a blessing not only to Israel and the, the making them into a great nation, a promise to bless them, but along with that blessing is that that blessing would not just stay in Israel. It, would, it was meant to be shared with all the nations of the earth. That blessing would expand to the farthest corners of the world because of the seed of Abraham. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And in this seed of Abraham, or what we come to know as the son of Abraham, everyone on earth will be blessed. You know, for many Israelites, the Abrahamic covenant became their hope for salvation. It was their national hope. They, it was their identity. In fact, it came to the place where they practically believed because they're a descendant of Abraham that that automatically meant that they were saved, that they automatically were right before God. And they confused it, being a descendant of Abraham with being the blessing of salvation that they would, thought they would be saved by their physical ancestry or by the, because of their physical ancestor. But they were wrong. 
The Abrahamic covenant is the promise of blessing of salvation, not by, because of the physical ancestor, but it would be a salvation by their physical descendant. The physical son, the seed of Abraham. And that seed, of course, is Jesus Christ. And it was very fitting, of course, in this, when we compare Genesis 22 with the gospel, what God does in the gospel. You can't help but notice that it is fitting that as Abraham did not hold back his only son from God, so God did not hold back his only son from dying on the cross for Abraham and his descendants, the Jewish people, but also that he did not hold back his son from dying for the nations of the earth. It's you and me, the Gentiles. See, Jesus is that son of Abraham that brings the blessing of salvation to all nations. It's all of us. It spans to the whole world, and that's why it's significant. Luke is often emphasizes this, this uh, universal kind of uh, uh, aspect of the gospel. Um, and so we leave that, and that leads us to the fourth and final aspect of Jesus' lineage, and that is this universal lineage. The universal lineage of Jesus, and, that is, and I believe this really is the main kind of point. It is the last statement, the concluding statement. We arrive at it at verse 38. But, uh, and, but it ends with Jesus being the son of Adam, the son of God. We can learn much uh, about the intent of Luke's uh, genealogy by this statement. This is unlike any genealogy. Uh, no one ever traced their genealogy back to, being, to, to call themselves the son of God. It, just, it wasn't done in Jewish culture. It was, uh, you know, they... <clears throat> Just seem, they understood that title, Son of God, is, has, is a very uh, is claimed to be equal with God. So it was never included in a, in a genealogy. But here, it, Luke's gospel records that Jesus was the son of Adam, the son of God. Now, so we can, first of all, we can understand the son of God in, in one way. How was son of Adam the son of God? Because it's, that's an implication here. And we know that and he was the son of God in the sense that he was created in the image of God. Genesis 1, 26, 27. Adam was created in God's image. And therefore, he, when God formed the man out of the dust from the ground, he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And then he became a living being. But God made Adam in his own image. He is the son of God. And in a sense, all of us who are created in the image of God after Adam, we are children of God. Uh, in fact, uh, Paul kind of alludes to that, and Paul influences, by the way, much of Luke's, uh, they were close associates, so Paul's theology influences much of Luke. And Paul, in Acts chapter 17, in the Athenian uh, Areopagus, talks about how we are all children of God because we're all made in him, made by God, and we live and move and, and have our being in, in him. So that, there is that sense here that's uh, implied by the statement. But whereas Matthew's genealogy traces Jesus back to Abraham, Luke traces Jesus back to Adam here. And that's significant. For in so doing, Luke is showing us that Jesus is basically a representative of all humanity. He's the representative of all, all mankind. He is, as we sung in the song, he is the true and better Adam. He became part of the line of Adam in order to redeem Adam's race. Jesus is not the Savior for only the Jewish people, not only the descendants of Abraham, but he is the Savior for all mankind, for all the descendants of Adam. As was written back in Luke chapter 2, verse 32, when Simeon held Jesus in his arms, he said, Jesus is a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Jesus came to save both Jews and Gentiles. The gospel is the power of salvation for everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentiles. The salvation that God offers has always been for all people, all people, no matter who you are. And at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Luke makes clear that Jesus came to save mankind. But Luke, what Luke implies here at the end is made more explicitly clear by the Apostle Paul because Jesus is the better Adam. Uh, in fact, Luke's, in Luke's theology, in places like uh, in 1 Corinthians as well as in Romans, Romans 5 as well, we'll I'll show you in a little bit. Jesus is based, uh, we learn that Jesus is, or Adam is a type of Christ. Romans 5.14 brings that out, mentions that. And that Adam somehow is a symbol of, of Jesus Christ. 
But where Adam is the first Adam, Jesus is the last Adam, or the second Adam sometimes called. And whereas Adam was imperfect, Jesus is the perfect Adam. And you remember in the first Adam, that's when sin entered the human race. But in the last Adam, in Jesus who was the son of Adam, the son of God, who the perfect one, Jesus, he, salvation, the gift of righteousness will enter the human race. I mentioned Romans 5 already. Romans 5, 17, 18 brings this out. The contrast between uh, the one who is Adam, the one who is uh, Jesus. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resided, resulted justification of life to all men. You know, we're all cursed by sin because of Adam's transgression. But we can all be saved because of Jesus' righteous act of dying upon the cross for you and me. There's another Pauline significance to the final phrase, the son of Adam, the son of God. And that's, we can gather that from just the placement of this genealogy in uh, the Gospel of Luke. Uh, remember where this genealogy takes place. It takes place between Jesus' baptism and Jesus' temptation. And I want you to kind of just note something here. I think I don't know if I've highlighted it before, but I'll mention it. In Jesus' baptism, God declares, you are the Son of God. But in Jesus' genealogy, which we end at, Jesus is the Son of God. But when we look at the temptation that comes in the next bit, we're going to see that Satan's going to, as he tempts, as he focuses on who Jesus, he tries to challenge him. He says, if you are the Son of God. In fact, twice he'll say that in the temptation of Jesus. There's a, and from, because of that, there's a clear, I believe that Luke has intentionally put his uh, genealogy right here as Jesus preparing for ministry. He didn't need to be placed here, but he puts it here to show us that Jesus is because he is the true and perfect Adam that he is now qualified to represent all, all humanity like, uh, like Adam represented our, our humanity but in, in a sense not to enter, bring sin into the world but to bring salvation into our world. And uh, Satan will come and tempt him but and where Adam failed, Jesus would succeed. And because of his triumph over Satan, over sin, especially on the cross, it will lead to life for all humanity who believes in him. Jesus is a universal, has a universal lineage that reaches out to bring, allow salvation to extend to all of us. All right? So that's, these are four aspects of Jesus' lineage. And I hope that they've been kind of just helpful for you to establish for you who Jesus is. And that you just see that all these names here and all these different themes that are this, from the different places in Scripture, from Davidic covenant, Abrahamic, to, to Pauline theology that comes in, that all are pointing to the fact that Jesus is the rightful messianic son of God who has come to bring salvation to all humanity. I'll just uh, make a concluding, just add a little concluding statement here. Because Jesus is the son of Joseph, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of Adam. He, therefore, because of that, he is the culmination and fulfillment of all the promises of God to bring salvation not just to Israel, but to all mankind. Now, and no one else could do this. He alone, of all humanity, could do so. Because why? In the very end, he alone is the unique son of God. As Luke begins to prepare us to tell us of, of Jesus' ministry and all that he did, Luke wants us to understand that Jesus alone is qualified to be the, the messianic son of God. No one else is qualified. He alone is. And he's writing, remember, he's writing to, to Theophilus and people like him who are doubting, is, is Jesus really the Messiah? Is he the one who we should believe in? And Luke, by including this here for people like Theophilus, people who learn about Jesus but are doubting or wavering, says that you, have, you can put your hope in him. You don't need to look for anyone else. You've already believed him. You come to discover who he is. You don't need to change. You can put your hope, you don't need to put your hope in anyone else. You can keep your hope in him. Don't put your hope in your president. Don't put your hope in, in the pope. Don't put your hope in your parents. Don't put your hope in your pastor. Because they're all sinners. 
especially your pastor, by the way. But you put your hope in Jesus, the son of Joseph, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of Adam, the son of God, because he is the perfect son of God. And he is sufficient for your life and your godliness. He is sufficient for your salvation. You do, and when, if you are wavering in, your, in your, uh, your faith in him, and sometimes trials bring that along, sometimes when you're a young Christian, uh, you may waver in your faith. Is this, is this who he really is? And some of you are pretty young in your faith. Look at passages like this. Look at the rest of Luke and know that Jesus is the only one who could fulfill all of God's promises. Don't look for anything else. If you, look, if you have believed in Jesus, you need look nowhere else. But if you're here and you have not believed in Jesus, then I'm going to tell you right now, you, you, may be still, you may be just beginning your search. But if you've been with us for a while and you're kind of still not, you, you've been kind of like, well, I'm just checking out. Check out no further. The scripture is real clear. This, this passage tells you that Jesus is the fulfillment of all God's promises. It's a confirmation of who he is. And the rest of Luke's going to bring that out. Don't wait. Believe today. Believe today in Christ. Turn from your sin and turn in faith to Jesus Christ. And then, with the power of the Spirit, study the rest of Luke with us. And I promise you, if you have believed in Christ and you, as you're, he will help you to see the rest of Luke flesh out and bring out the truth of who Jesus is, that you have not made a mistake, that Jesus is the Son of God who brings salvation to all mankind, to all humanity. And that includes you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for just this genealogy. Oh, Lord, we confess that it's a, it's a mouthful. There are the themes here that we don't normally think about every day. It's, it's not telling us some ethical thing to, to just read our Bible or pray or to, to, to witness. It, but instead, it just tells us who Jesus is. Now, Lord, I pray that as we have reflected upon this, that we'd be like Bereans and, and study this, this genealogy, even for our, in our, in our own personal studies. The Lord, you would help use this to confirm for us that Jesus is the fulfillment of all your promises, that he really is the messianic son that you have promised who will bring salvation to not just to Israel, but to all mankind. A salvation that is freely offered to anyone even now who would simply acknowledge that they are a sinner under your judgment and need to turn away from that sin and turn in faith in your provision of, of forgiveness through of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for their sins and rose from the grave. And God, may you, may you show them today, open eyes, open ears, that today will be a day of salvation, Lord, that this is a truth that all mankind needs to hear. And Lord, even as we reflect upon that, use us as a church to go forth into our world and tell others about who Jesus is. Lord, if we are, and may you, through this sermon, equip us whenever we are challenged about the, may the discrepancies, the apparent discrepancies of the genealogies, that we would have an answer, that the answer is of you, and that you would be glorified as we tell others of how you, you have spoken, and you, your word never lies. God, thank you for the revelation of Christ. Thank you for this time in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.